Let me invite you to turn again to the book of Luke, chapter 9. We are making our way through this chapter slowly but surely. And we've come this morning to verses 28 through 36. Luke 9, 28 through 36. And while you're turning there, let me just pause and ask the Lord for his help. Father, as we come to your word, we confess that we desperately need the help of the Holy Spirit to illuminate it for us, to teach us all things, to convict us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, to persuade us of your love for us, your mercy toward us. So please, by your Holy Spirit, come and help us now and let us leave with the attitude in our hearts that you obviously in this passage have in yours. Let us leave with a desire to point to your Son. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we read verses 28 through 36, I think it will be helpful if we look back just for a minute or two at the paragraph that precedes precedes these verses. And what we'll want to notice in verses 18 through 27 is how Jesus, we saw last week, poses two questions to his disciples. In verse 18, you see that he asks them, who do the people say that I am? And then in verse 20, and even more to the point, he asks, who do you, disciples, who do you say that I am? And then, of course, the rest of the passage is Jesus' way of pressing them for an honest answer to that second question. Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And those are questions, both of them, that are vital for us to answer. In fact, your answer to that second question will determine the destiny of your eternal soul. And now I want you to see that this morning's passage actually answers a third question. And it's another one that is vital for us to consider. After asking Who do the people say that I am? Verse 18. And then after being pressed to decide whom we say that Jesus is in verse 20, Luke wants us to make sure in this morning's passage that we understand most important of all who the Heavenly Father says that Jesus is. Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And now this morning, who does the Heavenly Father say that I am? Who does God say that? That I am. And the answer comes loudly and clearly as we read verses 28 through 36. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone 
they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Now our question is answered at the very end of the passage, isn't it? Who does God say that Jesus is? Verse 35, My Son, My Chosen One, listen to Him. But before we get to that answer, we need to consider all of the astonishing events that come before it and lead up to it in verses 28 and following. And as you look at the passage, I think you will notice that Luke, like a cinematographer, shifts the focus of his lens in these verses from face to face to face. In verses 28 and 29, the camera is zoomed in on the face of Jesus as it became different before the disciples' eyes. And then in verses 30 through 31, we look into the faces of Moses and Elijah as they confer with their Messiah. And then following that, the lens focuses in on the faces of Peter and his companions with their eyes closed and overcome with sleep in verses 32 and 33. And then finally, a cloud is drawn like a curtain over the scene in those last three verses. And all we hear is a voice from the cloud saying, this is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And so I point that out just to say that we are going to try to follow this morning the progression of Luke's camera. We're going to organize our thought this morning around each of those sort of facial close-ups that he gives us as we move along through these verses. So let's look, first of all, closely at the face of Jesus himself in verses 28 and 29. Jesus himself. Now, Of course, the most memorable event in this chapter and one of the most memorable in all the scriptures is the fact that in verse 29, Jesus' face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. That's amazing. We're going to spend most of our time thinking about that and the implications of it this morning. But I find it equally amazing in verse 28 that this same Jesus found it needful to go up on the mountain to pray. Have you ever thought about that? This Jesus, who was and is God's chosen one, verse 35, who was, verse 29, transfigured into a heavenly body right before the disciples' eyes, this Jesus who was and is, in fact, God-made flesh, this Jesus actually found it helpful and even necessary to get away by himself in a quiet place to pray. Isn't that amazing? Here in verse 28 we find a reminder that while Jesus was and is God's chosen one, while he was and is God made flesh, he was and is also God made flesh. John 1.14 We have here a reminder in Jesus' need to pray of his full humanity. In spite of what we're about to see in verse 29, Jesus was not somehow a superhuman All throughout the New Testament, the teaching is clear. He was a human being just like you and me. He hungered just like we do, Matthew chapter 4. He thirsted just like we do, John chapter 19. He tired just like we do, Mark chapter 4. He grieved just like we do, John chapter 11. He was tempted just like we are, Hebrews chapter 4, yet without sin. He bled just like we do, John 19. And he died just like each of us someday will. And here in Luke 9, 28, he prayed. 
just like we must. All throughout the Gospels, we see in Jesus this most unusual mingling of divine power and human earthiness. So that Jesus has all authority in heaven and in earth, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus has the ability which is reserved for God himself to forgive sins, Luke 5, 24. And yet at the same time, this Jesus needed to go up onto the mountain to pray. It's a reminder that he's fully human, just like you and I are fully human, yet without sin. And there's great encouragement in remembering that, isn't there? Jesus understands our lives. He feels our pain. He sympathizes with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4 tells us. And he delights in hearing the prayers of his fellow man because he himself is a man who needed to pray and who was tempted and tried and hurt and tired and hungry and sad, just like we are. Now, Also, as an aside, thinking about Jesus' prayer there in verse 28, if Jesus, God's chosen one, needed to pray, how much more do you need to pray? And how much more do I need to pray? In fact, let me just ask you, are you becoming more like Jesus in this regard? Do you find yourself year by year growing more and more dependent upon the Holy Spirit? More and more dependent on that sweet hour of prayer as Jesus is looking for here in verse 28? Are you growing in your ability, like Jesus, to pray without ceasing? It's an important question. We learn from the example of Jesus and we want to follow it. Now to help you even better recognize how astonishing it really is that Jesus has this desire, this need to go away and pray, let's now move into verse 29 and observe what is the most noticeable, memorable event in the passage. Namely, while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Who does God say that Jesus is? Well, before we ever get his verbal answer in verse 35, we're given a visual hint here in verse 29, aren't we? Because what happens to Jesus here in this verse is both unprecedented in Bible history and unrepeated in Bible history. No one else ever experienced what Jesus experienced here in Luke 9.29. Now I know that Moses would go off and pray to God in the tent of meeting and that when he would come back to the people from those prayer sessions, his face would be gleaming. We're told that in Exodus 34. But when we read Luke 9.29, it seems to me that something more was happening here with Jesus. Because not only did Jesus' face shine, but his clothing did as well. And not only does Luke say that his face shined, but that his face actually became different. Something was happening here that was more than just a radiance off of his face. Everything was changed And it seems what Luke is saying is that Jesus' appearance became like the appearance of a heavenly being. In fact, when you read how Jesus' heavenly body is described over in Revelation chapter 1, there are some striking similarities with what's said here. So what we have here in this passage is Jesus' body being transfigured into his heavenly body while his feet are still firmly planted on the earth. And I say again that that is unprecedented and unrepeated in the Bible. 
This kind of change, this kind of blessing only happened with Jesus. And why is that? Why only Jesus? Well, when you read the rest of the passage, it becomes clear that what God seems to have been doing in verse 29 was putting his divine stamp upon his son. By causing Jesus' face to become different and his clothes to become gleaming, his body to become a heavenly body, God was saying, in essence, if you haven't realized it already, if Jesus' unrivaled miracles and unparalleled teaching and unfettered love have not yet convinced you, let me show you, God is saying, in visible form, that this Jesus is no mere man. He is a man, but he's no mere man. He is God made flesh. He is the one about whom Isaiah prophesied a virgin will be with child chapter 7 verse 14 and she will call his name Emmanuel which Matthew tells us in chapter 1 is translated God with us that's who this is that's what God is saying to us in verse 29 so while Luke 9:28 is reminding us that Jesus was and is fully human Luke 9:29 is teaching us that Jesus was and is fully God as well Here we have in one and the same chapter and in one and the same Jesus all the fullness of deity and all the fullness of humanity. And in the rest of the Bible we have those facts affirmed and explained. Jesus is both fully man and fully God at one and the same time and without any division of essence or nature. Now the obvious question that people will ask is, well, how can that be? How can Jesus be fully God and fully man at one and the same time? Doesn't one plus one equal two? So how can we have full deity and full humanity and still have one person, Jesus of Nazareth? Well, it's a bit like asking how the earth can rotate around the sun without ever veering off track and hurtling out into oblivion. We all know that there's a technical term for it, right? Gravity. And we all know that gravity has to do with magnetic forces that various objects have and so on. But then, how is it that those magnetic forces actually work? And why are they there in the first place? And what's the bottom line science behind it all? Well, there are theories for that. But those are questions that are, at least at this point in scientific history, just beyond our full capacity to understand and observe. We have the technical word gravity, and we sort of know what it means. But beyond that, the answer to our question about how it all works must simply be God knows. And so it is with the two natures of Jesus. It's the same thing. There's a technical, theological word for what I'm describing to you this morning. You don't need to remember it, but it's hypostatic union. That's what it's called in the seminary books. And in seminary, they teach us that the hypostatic union means that Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person at one and the same time without any division in essence or nature. The same thing that I've been saying to you this morning. There's a word for it. But what's really behind all of that? How can that possibly be so? Well, it is so, but we can't quite put our fingers on all of it. It's the same as with gravity. We know the terms. We know the truth. We see it in action. But eventually we have to bow our knees and say, God knows. 
how one plus one can equal one. And it's true in the scriptures. Jesus was and is fully God and fully man. And incidentally, but importantly, this twofold nature of Jesus is why Jesus was capable of dying for our sins. Without this doctrine, we're dead. Because he was fully man, he was capable of dying. Which he could not have done if he had not become man. And because he was fully man, he was capable of dying for other men. Which sheep and goats cannot ultimately do. And because he was fully God, he was able to bear the wrath that our sins deserve without being utterly obliterated by it. So we have to have this doctrine. Our salvation is tied to it. Without it, there's no hope. Fully God, fully man, dying on our behalf. No wonder we sing beautiful Savior. That's exactly what Jesus is. God made flesh. And God made flesh on our behalf. Now in the next two verses, Luke's camera pans out from Jesus' face and allows us to see two of the millions of faces for whom this Jesus, the God-man, gave his life. So consider with me, secondly, Moses and Elijah in verses 30 through 31. Moses and Elijah. Why would these two heroes of the Old Testament all of a sudden show up on the scene in Luke chapter 9? Do you ever wonder why they were there? I mean, all that we've said so far that God was teaching could have been taught without Moses and Elijah ever being there. Why, why were they there? We're not told exactly why they were there. Perhaps they came simply to minister to Jesus and to encourage him regarding, quote, the departure, verse 31, that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Perhaps they were there to encourage him regarding all the difficulty and triumph that he was about to face in his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion and his resurrection and ascension. Perhaps God sent them like he sometimes sent angels to minister to Jesus' needs in this most crucial hour of his life. It's also possible and and I think likely that God sent these two men to the mountaintop that day in order to provide a backdrop for what he himself was about to say in verse 35. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I think that's how we should read it. In other words, perhaps Moses and Elijah were on the mountain so that God could say to Peter, James, and John, look who you're standing next to. The two greatest men in Old Testament history. There is no one like them among my people. But, pointing to Jesus, I want you to listen to him. For as great as Moses and Elijah were, they do not hold a candle to my son. So, listen to him. Worship him. Adore him. He is my chosen one. I think perhaps that's why these two greatest of all Old Testament saints were there that day. To provide that kind of a backdrop, that kind of a contrast. So that God could remind us that there is no one else like Jesus. Not even Moses or Elijah. Let me tell you what else I find helpful in verses 31. The fact that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are all together enjoying one another's fellowship and most significantly in verse 31, talking about the salvation that Jesus was about to accomplish. 
The fact that they're all together talking about the salvation Jesus is about to accomplish blows out of the water any notion that the Old and the New Testaments are somehow two different books that teach two different types of religion. Isn't that what people often think? People say, well, the Old Testament is a book about law and works, and the New Testament is a book about Christ and grace. That's what many people errantly believe. In fact, I had a man not long ago ask me, why does God seem so mad in the Old Testament and so happy in the New Testament? And that's the way many people read their Bibles. They see far too distinct a line drawn between Malachi and Matthew. But here we have the greatest men of both Testaments, Moses and Elijah and Jesus, standing around together and talking to one another, and they're all on exactly the same page. All three of them are fixing their attention on the departure. Literally, the Greek word is the exodus, which Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The salvation, the freeing up of his people that Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're all talking about the same thing. The Roman cross, where Jesus would die on behalf of sinners. Found that amazing? Moses, the great lawgiver, is here talking about the cross. And Elijah, the great Old Testament miracle worker, is here anticipating a far more significant miracle, namely the one that Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And it wasn't only on that day, on that mountain, that these two men looked forward to what Jesus was about to accomplish. No. Peter, who was there that day, would later remind us in 1 Peter chapter 1, that all throughout Old Testament times, quote, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets were constantly trying to figure out when is the Messiah going to come? What's he going to be like? Who is he going to be? What's he going to do? They were looking forward to these very events that they're now standing around and talking to Jesus about. So this wasn't the first time that Moses or Elijah had thought about the departure which Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The whole Old Testament is dedicated to these same kinds of discussions and this same kind of inquiry. So here in Luke 9, we're given just a small reminder that the Old and the New Testaments are one book in much the same way that Jesus' divine and human natures make up one person. There's no division between the two. Both Testaments are about Jesus. And in both Testaments, people were saved by looking to and trusting in Jesus. Some as they looked forward to Jesus, and some as they looked backward at Jesus. But the Bible is all about Jesus. That's what I get out of verses 30 through 31. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, all the way through, they're all thinking about the same thing. And every book and chapter and author in the Bible contains material by which God was either preparing the way for His Son or prophesying His coming or picturing His Gospel or pricking our hearts to show us our need of that Son and that Gospel. The Bible is always pointing us forward to these central events that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are conferring about. And I challenge you to read the Old Testament in just that way. I urge you, if you haven't done so already, to dive into the Old Testament 
and to read it looking for Christ there and not to be afraid of its unfamiliarity to you. In fact, if you just begin to read the Old Testament looking with Moses and Elijah and the prophets for Jesus, I think you'll find that the Old Testament is far more familiar than you ever imagined. So Moses and Elijah, along with all the saints of the Old Testament, were filled with anticipation to see Jesus' day. But as we read on in this chapter, we discover that some of the men who had the great privilege of actually seeing that day were not nearly as attentive as they should have been. So observe thirdly, as Luke zooms his camera in on Peter and his companions, verses 32 and 33. Peter and his companions sleeping. Some of you may have heard this past week about a certain former Cincinnati Red who was unavailable to pinch hit for his major league team in the seventh inning because he had allegedly fallen asleep during the fifth inning of his team's game. And you may have heard that story in the news and thought to yourself, how could anyone fall asleep during the middle of a major league baseball game? Much less one of the players. And yet, as as amazing as that is, 2,000 years ago, Peter and his companions, verse 32, one-upped that former Cincinnati red. Because as amazing as it might seem, as unbelievable as it might seem that someone would fall asleep during the middle of a Major League Baseball game, I think it would be all the more astonishing to fall asleep when you have been specially selected with only two other people to attend a prayer meeting with Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't that amazing that they're asleep in verse 32? I tried to think this week of what might be the equivalent of Peter, James, and John falling asleep on God's own son. Because I think even falling asleep in the clubhouse of your Major League Baseball game doesn't even compare to this. What would this be like? Well, the only thing I could think of was somebody falling asleep in the middle of their own wedding. And that would be maybe equally astonishing. But even that, even that I think, would be more understandable than having the chance to pray alone with the very Son of God and dozing off on him. It's really unbelievable what we read in verse 32. And this is another one of those occasions where we read the New Testament and we find ourselves shaking our heads at the twelve disciples and saying, what is the matter with you? This is another opportunity for us to say about them what we're sometimes tempted to say. How could these disciples have been so bumbling? Surely, if we had been there that day on the mountaintop, we wouldn't have fallen asleep. Don't we find ourselves thinking that way sometimes? When we read about these disciples, how could the disciples have fallen asleep? Or how could they have doubted Jesus' power that day in the midst of the storm on Lake Galilee? Mark chapter 4. Or how, after the disciples had seen Jesus feed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish, could they have doubted just a few chapters later in Mark 8 in the face of only 4,000 people and seven loaves of bread? How could Peter have rebuked Jesus for prophesying his own death in Matthew 16? And how could Peter have denied Jesus three times in John 18? And why didn't Thomas believe in the resurrection until he saw the holes in Jesus' hands and feet? John chapter 20. Indeed, how on earth could Peter say what he says here in Luke 9.33? 
Are Moses and Elijah equivalent with Jesus that three tents should be built, one for each of them? It would be one thing if Peter had said this about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There are three persons who dwell in equality together. But Moses and Elijah, equivalent to Jesus? You don't know what you're saying, Peter. Aren't those the thoughts that we sometimes think when we read the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John? And the way we sometimes ask those questions in our minds is almost as if to say, if I had been there, I wouldn't have been so foolish as Peter was or as Thomas was. But the truth is, yes, you would. And so would I. We are just as bumbling as Peter and his companions in verse 32. In fact, let me just ask you, how many times in the past week have you found yourself worrying when you should have been praying? Or taking matters into your own hands, verse 33, when you should have listened and waited on the Lord. How many times in the last week have you doubted one of God's good promises? Or cowered when you had the opportunity to speak for Jesus? How many times have you fallen asleep, verse 32, in the middle of your devotions? Some of you may be getting sleepy even now. So we're no different from these disciples, really. The only difference is they had more public opportunities to make spiritual buffoons out of themselves than we're generally allotted. And guys like Luke wrote it down for everybody to read 2,000 years later. But really, when we boil it all down, and when we're honest with ourselves, we're forced to admit that we're just as spiritually weak and clumsy as Peter and his companions were. That's why it's such good news that Jesus is fully God and fully man and was therefore capable of laying down his life for sinners. For bumbling, fumbling, stumbling disciples like us. For sleepy, inattentive, spiritually slack people like ourselves. It's good news that Jesus loves sinners. Have you soaked in that truth again this week? Yes, I know you blew it again. Yes, you probably deserve a rebuke like the one Peter, James, and John were about to get in verse 35. Yes, maybe you fell asleep during your devotions like I did this past Thursday. Maybe you skipped them all together. No, you might not have shared the gospel again this week. Yes, you probably need to become all the more diligent, 2 Peter 1.10 to seek God's face and to honor His Son. And I don't want to minimize those struggles and sins at all, but I do want to remind you that in spite of their blundering, Jesus loved Peter and his companions. And He didn't give up on them after this incident. He didn't trade them in for a better set of disciples. Indeed, in just a few chapters, through the departure which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, Jesus died for these spiritual butterfingers named Peter, James, and John. And Jesus also loves their fumbling modern-day spiritual ancestors and gave his life for them too. That's good news. With that good news, let me, though, ask you this. After Peter had denied Jesus three times and watched him die in agony and shame 
and been forgiven for his denials and become a witness of Jesus' resurrection, do you think Peter continued snoozing his way through his spiritual life? It wouldn't seem so when you read the books of Acts and 1 Peter. Rather, when you read those books and 2 Peter as well, what becomes clear is that understanding just how much Jesus loved him and experiencing the power of the resurrection changed Peter. Woke him up and he didn't sleep like that anymore. And it ought to change us. And so I pray that Luke 9.32 might be, pardon the pun, a wake-up call for some of us in this room who right now are spiritually sleepwalking. For some of us who would be wide awake if our favorite team were playing or if some good business deal presented itself or if something was wrong with our physical bodies, we'd be wide awake, but we're fairly sleepy when it comes to the care of our souls. May Luke 9.32 wake us up. Some of you, truth be told, like Peter, James, and John in verse 32, are slumbering spiritually. And others of you, like Peter in verse 33, are busy, but about all the wrong things. Some of you, though you would not say it this way, know that your life shows right now that you're elevating certain things and people and goals to a level where they do not belong, just like Peter did with Moses and Elijah. And so perhaps for us all, it's time that we hear the rebuke that comes to those who are loved and forgiven, but who need to be disciplined. We need to hear the rebuke now in verses 34 through 36. So look finally with me as Luke turns our attention now to God the Father. Verses 34 through 36. God the Father. Seeing Jesus himself, we've seen Moses and Elijah, we've seen Peter and his companions. But now it's significant that though we saw the face of Jesus, verse 29, and though we looked at Moses and Elijah in verse 30, and while we watched the disciples' eyes fall shut in verse 32, when we come to verse 34, when it comes time, in other words, to see God the Father, we don't actually see anything. Instead, a cloud covers the scene so that neither we nor Moses and Elijah nor Peter and James and John are allowed to look into God's face. And there's a good reason for that. Because God told Moses in Exodus 33:20, "You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live." That's why so often in the Bible when God draws near to people, they find themselves as Peter, James and John did, enveloped in a cloud. That was one way in which Bible people learned to recognize that God had drawn near. And that was one way in which God could draw near and make His presence known and felt to His people without men and women seeing His face and perishing. That's what's happening here. Now, of course, there's a sense in which we could say that God doesn't actually have a face, right? At least not in the way that we conceive of a face. God is spirit, Jesus tells us in John 4, and he doesn't have a body like us. And yet, God often speaks about his face as a way of describing his character and his personality. And the fact that we cannot see that face and live 
is a reminder that God in his character and personality is holy, holy, holy. And that we cannot simply approach God any way that we like. And that there is one sense, at least, in which God is inapproachable. That's why our worship, whether it's personal worship or family worship or church worship, should never be flippant and silly, but should always be wrapped in utmost reverence. Even in those cases when we're drawing near to God as a warm and loving Father. He is that, but He's still our Maker. He's still the thrice holy God. And Peter, James, and John were getting a tangible reminder of that fact as they were enveloped in this cloud in verse 34. That's why they were afraid as they entered the cloud. They knew far better than modern men and women sometimes know just how serious and awesome a thing it is to be found in the presence of the living God. God the Father, we're being reminded here, is awesome and wonderful and inviting and terrifying, all in one being. No man can see his face and live. And yet, isn't it wonderful that in his mercy, God took on flesh so that in the person of his son, we can, in a manner of speaking, see his face and live? We don't see the Father's face, but the Son has come and made Himself flesh so that we can see God. Isn't it wonderful that when we get to heaven, we shall see Jesus face to face, 1 Corinthians 13. Isn't God merciful in that regard? No one has seen God at any time, John 1.18. The only begotten God, Jesus who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Or to put it more simply, and in the words of Jesus Himself, He who has seen Me, John 14, 9, has seen the Father. We can see God's face in Jesus, but we cannot see it directly. We must be protected and enveloped in this kind of cloud. Well, Peter and James and John got the high privilege both of seeing Jesus face to face and being caught up in the cloud of God's presence too. And what did the Father say to them when He drew near in this unusual way? What did He do when He drew near? Well, He did what He so often does. Namely, He pointed them to His Son. That's what God does. That's what the Father does. He's put all things in subjection to His Son. And He's worked everything out, Colossians 1.18, so that He would come to have first place in everything. God is in the world pointing people to His Son. In fact, this is the second time in the book of Luke that we see Him doing so. In Luke chapter 3, at Jesus' baptism, we heard this same voice saying virtually the same thing. You are My beloved Son. In You I am well pleased. Luke 3.22. And now in Luke 9 we hear it again. This is my Son. And the way in which the Father speaks to and about His Son gives us a little bit of a glimpse into their relationship with one another. I say this reverently, but I think we should hear Luke 3.22 and Luke 9.35 being spoken in the tone of voice of a proud Father. 
In you I am well pleased. The Heavenly Father is in all the right ways proud of His boy. Sometimes I have occasion to take one or other of my children to some place, maybe it's the YMCA or the UDF or some church function, but to take them somewhere where the people there know me, but they don't know my children. And something exciting happens in my heart when I'm able to introduce Julia or Andrew or Silas or Sally to someone and say to them, this is my little girl, or I want you to meet my son. And if ever an earthly father was well pleased with and proud of his son, the heavenly father is far more so, don't you think? God loves his son. That's what verse 35 is really all about. God loves his son more than we can ever imagine. And that will be very important to remember when we get to Luke chapter 23. For what does it say about God and his love for us? That he'd be willing to give up his only boy. The one in whom he is well pleased. The one of whom he is so proud. The one that he's always pointing out to people. What does it say about his love for us? That he would give up that boy to save poor, misguided sinners like us. Don't let that slip by you as you read these words. This is my son. This is my son who will lay down his life for your sins. What a sacrifice. It must have been for the Heavenly Father to make. This is my Son. And then He calls Jesus His Chosen One. His Chosen One, which is another word for Messiah or Christ. All three really the same thing. And what God is saying with that phrase essentially is this. Peter, you were correct back in verse 20. He is the Christ. He is the one you've been waiting for all these years. He is the child who will be born to us in Isaiah 9. He is, Peter, the prophet that Moses predicted would come in Deuteronomy 18. He is the one who will be pierced through for your transgressions, Isaiah 53, and crushed for your iniquities. So listen to him. And remember as God tells Peter and his companions to listen to him, that Moses and Elijah are still in the background. They'd started walking off, but then they were enveloped in the cloud and they're still there. And Peter knows they're there. And remember what Peter said in verse 33 as he suggested that the two of them might somehow be equal with Jesus. And then realize that what God is saying at the end of verse 35 is, No, Peter. Wonderful as Moses and Elijah are, they are not my sons. They are not my chosen ones. Listen to Him. Listen to Jesus. He's the one they were prophesying about. He's the one they were looking for. He's the one, though they did not yet know His name, in whom they trusted for forgiveness and eternal life. Listen to Him. Now that's not to say that what Moses and Elijah taught was bunk. Nor is it to suggest that their message was somehow fundamentally different from or opposed to the message of Jesus. No, we already said, didn't we, that all three of these men were on the same page. Anticipating the same departure, the same exodus, the same redemption, the same good news in verse 31. So God's not pitting what Moses and Elijah taught against what Jesus taught. But what God is saying is that Jesus is far greater than Moses and Elijah and Daniel and Ruth and Job and Samuel and David 
and Solomon and so on. Jesus is far greater than every other great man or woman in either the Old or the New Testament. All of them looked to Him. All of them trusted in Him. All of them wrote about Him. All of them were sinners who desperately needed Him. So listen to Him, God says. And as you listen to all of them, have your ears specifically attuned for what they say about Him. It's all about Jesus. Do you listen to Him? Do you listen to Him? Really? He's told you in John 3.16 that whoever believes in Him, me, Himself, will not perish but have eternal life. Are you listening? Have you believed? Did you listen to Him last Sunday when He said in Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Do you listen when he says, John fifteen twelve? this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Do you listen when he encourages you with those words in John 10, 10? I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do you listen when he says in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Do you listen? Do you believe that? Do you trust in the promises of Jesus? And do you heed the commands of Jesus? Indeed, I should ask you if you listen to him as he speaks by his Holy Spirit throughout the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. One of my professors used to tell us that the whole Bible ought to be red letter edition. Because the Holy Spirit who inspired the whole Bible is called consistently through the New Testament the Spirit of Christ. So not only is the whole Bible about Jesus, but the whole Bible comes from Jesus through the Spirit of Christ. And so wherever you may be in your Bible reading, and wherever you may be right now on the timeline of your spiritual journey, Luke 9.35 is a word in season for you today. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. 